This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're in the final stretch of a series of studies in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This morning we're looking at verses 7 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish... We'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let us pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are a prayer hearing God. We thank you, Father, that, uh, that you welcome your children, when we approach you. And Father, as we pray now, we ask that you will bless our study of this passage. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to impress it on our hearts. We pray that you would teach us what you would have us to know. And Lord, that you would convict us where there's sin and that you would encourage us where we need encouragement. And we thank you, Father, for your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to make Christians uncomfortable, there are two subjects that you can bring up and begin to talk about. Actually, there are probably many more than two, but uh, there are two in particular that are commonly discussed from the pulpit or among Christians that uh, can kind of make us a little bit anxious. One is evangelism. For some people, the thought of actually speaking to someone else about their faith in Christ sends cold chills down their spines, causes their knees to go weak. And there's any number of reasons for that. You may not feel like you really know enough to talk about it, or you might be afraid of what kind of questions they might come up or the reaction that they might have. Uh, But there are all kinds of remedies to that too, including really knowing the Scriptures as best as you can, and most of all, loving the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in His grace and His power to be at work in you and through you, and especially in our weakness. But there's another subject that tends to make Christians uncomfortable, and it is the subject of prayer. Often when we talk about prayer, uh, we may study all kinds of techniques and methods and ideas and read books, and but when it comes right down to it, there are probably very few Christians who don't experience some sense of deep inadequacy 
when it comes to prayer. And many will confess, I wish I prayed more. I would like to pray more. Uh, busyness, schedules, all of these things. And if the schedule's not busy, sometimes the mind is. And it's hard just to slow down and to concentrate on praying and spend time with the Lord. Well, the good news is that prayer is not supposed to be a necessarily a burden or a source of guilt, let alone consternation, to the Christian. It is to be a source of joy. I think one reason prayer seems so difficult is because we make it that way, maybe with preconceived ideas about what prayer ought to be. But it's noteworthy, as we have studied the Sermon on the Mount, that prayer has come up more than once already. As Jesus teaches his disciples and teaches us through the written word here, uh, that Jesus already has had a great deal to say about prayer. And here uh, he again comes back and addresses this matter of prayer, maybe because he knew uh, that for his disciples, for those who follow him, prayer would sometimes be mysterious, sometimes frustrating, sometimes just hard. And so Jesus has already provided teaching and he provides some more here. Now, as we look at verses 7 through 11, we've already seen in our study of the Son of the Mount how important the context is. Jesus is addressing his disciples. Jesus is speaking here uh, to Christian people, to those who know him, to those who follow him, to those who belong to him. Now, as he's already taught on prayer, we saw particularly in uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, really 9 through 14, with the epilogue, Jesus teaching on the Lord's Prayer. He, he's speaking there of the pattern for prayer. We've said that the Lord's Prayer is a pattern. It's a template. It's a guideline for various subjects that we would cover in our prayer life. Maybe not all at once, but at least these elements should be part of our praying when we pray uh, over days or weeks, certainly months. Uh, he taught us of The focus of prayer earlier where he spoke about praying, when you pray not to be like the hypocrites. We're not praying to please people. We're seeking our Father in heaven. And so the focus of prayer is the face of God. We can go into our closet and pray in secret. And ideally, uh, our prayer life is like an iceberg. For what's visible that others might hear, there's much more under the surface, uh, much more praying that takes place in secret. So the, the focus of prayer is God himself. The pattern for prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And now Jesus returns to this subject of prayer and he addresses the motivation for prayer. He gives us here uh, words that are designed, I think, to motivate us, to encourage us in our prayer life. But what is that motivation as we look at this passage? Well, here's where it's especially important that we not simply take these verses and cut them out of the Bible and frame them and stick them on the wall and say, here are these verses. Jesus told me to pray. He told me to ask and it will be given to me. He told me to seek and I would find. He told me to knock and the door will be opened. Well, he did say those things. He told us those things, but he tells us those things in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. The last thing that this is, is a blank check to be spent on our selfishness, on our greed. Jesus gave us these words in the context of the sermon. And let's just review this briefly. Uh, In chapter 5, Jesus is telling us what true righteousness is all about, starting with our own personal character, which begins with being poor in spirit. Not 
proud, not, not uh, prideful, not haughty, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Uh, on the other hand, not sad sacks either, but having a realistic appraisal of our spiritual bankruptcy before our Father in heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God. And then flowing from that, mourning over our sins, uh, the meekness, the gentleness that is the result of that. Uh, goes on to explain in chapter 5 what true righteousness is all about. And in the, in, in the meantime, has to unteach some of the things that they have learned, uh, that they have been taught that simply were wrong or were incomplete or were a distortion or misuse of God's law. Jesus wasn't correcting God's law. He was correcting the misinterpretation that had Come up around it. In chapter 6, uh, we're chapter 5, dealing with true righteousness. Chapter 6, dealing with true devotion. Uh, our purpose in acts of righteousness isn't to win an audience from people, to win the applause or the high opinion of others. It's to seek God. It's to seek His face, to seek an audience with Him, to please Him in our giving, to please Him and seek Him in our fasting, not to win the approval of others. A question of motivation. And then talking about treasures in heaven and the need we have not to be anxious because we have a father who loves us and will provide for us. But rather, our purpose is to seek his kingdom, to seek his righteousness, those things first. And we have a father that as we do that, will provide everything that we need. And so then we come to this passage of chapter seven uh, about our graciousness toward others. The person who is poor in spirit will see logs in his own eye. He might see the specks in others, and he's dealing with the sin in his own life. And that puts him in a place where, with Jesus, as Jesus teaches, he's equipped and able, prepared to begin to help others deal with sin in their lives as well. Against our tendency to totally ignore our own sin and see huge logs of sin in the eyes of everybody around us. That's self-righteousness. But the poor in spirit see the logs in their own eyes and might see the specks in others And so then Jesus comes to these verses, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Well, I'd like to suggest to you that as we study this passage that we find here three foundations that can motivate us to to prayer, to seek the Lord. First of all, we we pray on the basis of God's invitation. Look at verse 7. Ask. Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. We pray on the basis of God's invitation. God says to come to him, to ask, to seek, to knock. Jesus already gave us this petition, that we, uh, the, the prayer that we can come and address God as our Father. And here it is again. He invites us to come. The Father wants his children to come, to talk to him to tell him what's going on in their lives, to bring their needs, their concerns, their fears, to confess their sins and seek his forgiveness. He invites us. Now, it's worth noting this is an invitation to family. It would be wrong to say that this verse applies to all people everywhere. This is a verse for Christians. This is an open door that we have through Christ to come to the Father. In fact, as Jesus says in verse 11, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, the very phrase that he gave us to address God in our prayer lives in the sermon in the uh, in chapter six of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. So he is speaking to those who are children of the Father, those who have believed in Christ, those whose sins have been forgiven by God 
through the, uh, the, the atonement of the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a family invitation. You'll notice also that it is repetitive. Why didn't Jesus just say, ask, and it'll be given to you? Well, I think there's uh, certainly an emphasis given here uh, in the fact that it's repeated, and, and repeated again in verse 8. Uh, but the, the repetition implies the need to persevere. Ask, and it will be given to you. We might think, well, ask once, but seek and certainly implies effort. It implies looking. It implies maybe an ongoing search, seeking. Knock, and it will be opened to you. might have to knock more than once to get an answer at the door. Uh, the repetition seems to imply the need to persevere. And certainly Jesus addressed that in other places. Remember Luke chapter 18, verse 1, uh, where Jesus told the parable of the persistent or importunate widow. But Jesus, before he told the parable, Luke says that Jesus told the parable to teach us that we ought to pray and not give up. Sometimes we give up too easily. And that need for persistence, I think, is, is implied here by the repetition. I like the way D.A. Carson uh, puts this. He's talking about persistence in prayer. He says, persistence is required. But persistence in what? The answer is persistence in prayer. And this is important. Not prayer seen as an occasional pious request for some isolated blessing. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, prayer that is a burning pursuit of God. This asking is an asking for the virtues Jesus has just expounded. This seeking is a seeking for God. This knocking is a knocking at heaven's throne room. It is a divinely empowered response to God's open invitation. In Jeremiah 29:13, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Persistence in prayer, certainly persisting for those things that we need. But what do we need more than God himself? And certainly, I think Dr. Carson's right. The whole Sermon on the Mount teaches us that we are seeking God. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek the things of the Lord. Seek godly character. Persevere in praying that God would give you real heart righteousness. It's discouraging, isn't it? The Christian life can be discouraging. Pray that God would make you poor in spirit and persevere in that. That He would take away self-righteousness and pride. Pray that God would make you someone who mourns over your own sin such that you become a meek and gentle person in your dealings with others. Because you recognize your own sin. And it makes you very gracious towards the sins of others. So persevering and praying for these things. But it's also a standing invitation. It's good any time. God's door is open and he says, come, ask, seek, knock. He welcomes us any time. No appointment is necessary. Jesus, as we talked about the first day of Bible school, is the way, the truth, and the life. That was Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Monday was the way. And we talked about how Jesus, through his death on the cross, opened the way to God. The emblematic of that. At Jesus' death, Matthew tells us that that great veil hanging in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies, a veil that was a barrier to the presence of God, was torn in two, ripped in half. The way to God is open. 
God has invited you. Come to me. Ask. Seek. Knock. Yes, praying first and foremost for the things of the kingdom. But not being afraid to ask for our own needs. Give us this day our daily bread. The way to God is open. He invites us to come to him. We pray on the basis of his invitation. We also pray, verse 8 tells us, on the basis of God's promise. Look at verse 8. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. God promises to answer. He doesn't just say, come to me, invite us into his presence. But he promises us that as we pray, he will respond to our prayers. Now, again, context is important. Uh, We don't come and pray uh, selfishly or even carelessly. Uh, James warns about those who pray for things simply to expend them on their own desires. Uh, If we are Sermon on the Mount people, the kingdom is our focus. The kingdom is our passion. The Lord himself is our desire. Now, that's not to say we can't pray for various needs or even wants, things that we simply would desire that otherwise are not sinful. Uh, We can. But I think the assurance here is praying for those matters that Jesus laid out in the first part of the Lord's Prayer, that God's name would be hallowed, that the kingdom would come, that God's will would be done. And especially praying those things, you can be assured it is God's will that those things happen. Have you ever prayed for someone's salvation and prayed, Lord, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come in this person's life? You know, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus, this person's lost. I pray that you would seek him. I pray that you would save her. You can never be more certain of praying the will of God when you pray according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer and praying for these kingdom causes. God is able to do what he has promised. Uh, He says that he will respond, he will answer our prayers. He's able to do that because God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. As he told his disciples, as Jesus told his disciples, with God nothing is impossible. You know, you and I may promise things, and have every intention of fulfilling them. But we can't because we're not all powerful. There are some things that we may not be able to do. God is also all-knowing. He's not only able to do it because he's all-powerful, but he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. That is, nothing takes him by surprise. We may be surprised. We may promise our children, say, that we're going to go to Stone Mountain on Saturday. And, and Saturday comes and... Praise God, there's thunderstorms and rain pouring down. And we can't go. Wouldn't be safe. Certainly wouldn't be comfortable. And so we have to explain to our children, I know I promised, but the weather's bad. I didn't know it was going to be bad. I hoped it it wouldn't be bad, but it is. And we just, we can't go. And so you have to break a promise because an unforeseen event occurred. That never happens to God. God's never taken by surprise. God never has some unforeseen contingency come in and force a change of plans. God is able to do what he has promised. He's trustworthy to do what he has promised. Uh, He will never deceive us. He will never mislead us. I love Titus 1-2. That refers to God who never lies. Unlike Satan who is a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. His his, his element, the water in which he swims, is deception, deceit, falsehood. Not so with God. 
God never lies. If God has said it, you can count on it. And God says here that if we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we will find. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so we can count on God's word. We pray on the basis of God's promise. We also pray on the basis of God's goodness. We pray on the basis of God's goodness. Look at verses 9 through 11. Jesus kind of gives something of a a miniature parable here. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Here's a rock. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Well, you know, we've all had our children come along and say, can I have a snack? You've tried to teach them to say, may I have a snack, but it hasn't taken yet. Can I have a snack? And let's assume it's an appropriate time. You know, it's between, well between meals and uh, they're hungry. And so you give them something to eat. You give them something good. No parent worthy of the name would give them a rock. No parent would give them, certainly give them a snake. And yes, there are those out there who are uh, cruel to their children, but certainly no parent worthy of the name would treat their child in that way. We give them good things. Well, look at the, look at the analogy. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. If you then, being evil, did Jesus really say that? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Yes, we are evil. We're fallen. We are sinners. We are capable of being cruel to our children. And notice Jesus does not include himself there. He knew who he was as the sinless Son of God. He identifies with the Father over against us at this point. If you, who are evil, are our fallen and sinful creatures prone to all kinds of wickedness, if you know how to treat your children kindly, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God is good to us. Everything we need, physically, spiritually, to live a life of faithful discipleship, such as the Sermon on the Mount presents, God will give to us. He will provide for us. Now, He is good. He's not indulgent. There may be times when God does say no to our requests. You know, our child comes up, it's ten minutes to supper, and he says, can I have some ice cream? Well, no. That would not be good for him. It's not a wise thing to do. Um, God is not indulgent. He's good, but he's not indulgent. Sometimes he is. Sometimes he gives us blessings that we are just astounded at, far out of the ordinary, just like the child who asks for ice cream knowing full well what the answer is, and the parent says, "Mm, okay, let's do it just this once. But God is good, and we know that he will give us what we need. Sometimes he does say no. Sometimes he tells us to wait, like when your 8-year-old asks if he can drive home from church today. Well, there'll come a day when that will happen, but not yet. Not today. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. But the argument here is that we pray on the basis that God is good to us. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Or is your view of God that somehow he's really not good, that maybe he has it in for you? If you're a child of God today then your sins have been atoned for. God's wrath, every bit of it, is already gone. He's poured it out on Jesus on the cross. 
you have nothing but God's grace, God's blessings, God's goodness. And you and I, if we think and count up blessing after blessing and name them and praise God for them. But I think the reality is there are far more blessings, far more expressions of God's goodness and grace in our lives than 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 the ones we can count. The things we don't see, the things we were unaware of, the blessings that God sent our way. So we pray on the basis of God's invitation. We pray on the basis of God's promise. We pray on the basis of God's sheer goodness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, a conviction that God loves me, that he wants nothing but good for me, is the adrenaline that adds energy, adds vitality to your prayer life. That we come to a Father who welcomes us warmly with open arms. John Newton, writer of the hymn that we're going to sing later, urges these truths on us with these words. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore he will not say nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none could ever ask too much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an open door, an open invitation through Christ to come into your presence and to pray. Father, forgive us our prayerlessness. Forgive us when we are prayerless because we have preconceived ideas of what prayer should be or make it even harder than it need be. But Father, we pray that you would make us a praying people to come at your invitation, to trust in your promises, to rest in your goodness. Father, we love you. We thank you for hearing us. Thank you for answering our prayers. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.